Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Romans this morning. We are in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. The obedience of faith is what I've titled the message here. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts. Help me to speak the truth accurately, clearly, in love. And uh, so may your word go forth with power, have, have its way in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You'll note on the overhead, we have the theme, uh, the righteousness of of God or the gospel of God, you know, kind of a debate which emphasis should be made. Both are found in the book of Romans. We are in uh, the prologue. We have just begun our study in the book of Romans. Actually, Romans 1, 1 through 7 is one long sentence in the Greek. And we find here in this single sentence, the main thrust of the entire book Uh, Right out of the gate in verse 1, Paul mentions the gospel of God, and that sets him going. Uh, He's wanting to introduce himself, right? But really, it's pretty hard to introduce yourself as an apostle of Christ without bringing in the gospel, because that's why he is an apostle, because of the gospel. So he mentions the gospel of God, which is the big idea that carries this entire sentence. Now, it is to this gospel that Paul, as an apostle, was separated to. It is this gospel that was prophetically promised in the Old Testament scriptures. And this gospel is about God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David and declared to be the Son of God in the resurrection. Well, Paul now continues his thought in regard to this gospel concerning the resurrected Christ and how we must respond in order to be saved. We pick it up, verse 5 right midstream, uh, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. It is through the resurrected Christ that Paul says he received grace and apostleship. Now the we here is thought really to refer to Paul, uh, what we might call an editorial we, or the we of apostolic authority, Because of what Paul goes on to say regarding the nations, uh, literally, more literally, Gentiles, it is thought that essentially only Paul is in view as he uniquely is specifically called an apostle to the Gentiles. Now note back in verse 1 that Paul links his calling to be an apostle to being separated to the gospel. And then here in verse 5, he closely links grace and apostleship. The linkage is such that the sense here in the flow of thought seems to be, in essence, the grace of apostleship. Grace is received. It's never earned. By its very nature, grace is a totally God thing. Paul was not a self-appointed man. Rather, he was positioned as an apostle solely by God's grace. He didn't earn it. Uh, Grace is God's unmerited favor. It was the risen Christ that gave specially gifted people to the church, as seen in Ephesians 4, 10 and 11. So note there, Ephesians 4, speaking of Christ who descended, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself, emphasis, he himself, that's Christ, Gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. 
Now, this text refers to specially gifted people, not to an office per se. And they are uniquely given to the church by Christ. These are specially gifted people. They are quite literally Christ's gift to the church. Now, each one of these gifted people have a special role in relation to the ministry of the word. The apostles and their close associates, the prophets, had a very special revelatory role as they laid the foundation of New Testament truth that then the church going forward builds on. You know, you only lay a foundation once, right? You don't get up to the fifth floor and say, you know, I think we should lay another foundation. No, you don't do that. Uh, They laid the foundation, the truth foundation on which the church now in all these generations has continued to build. We always go back to the foundation. Everything builds on that. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, foundation. And then in 3.5, which in other ages, speaking of the New Testament truth, this mystery that Jews and Gentiles are now uh, on an equal level, uh, spiritually equals in Christ, uh, this mystery in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to who? To his holy apostles and prophets. The grace here in Romans 1.5 that links with apostleship is not saving grace, but grace related to special apostolic service. And Paul repeatedly uh, says something like this in Ephesians 3.8, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He constantly goes back, uh, I am what I am by the grace of God. Now, what God calls a person to do, he graces them to do. Paul was privileged to be an apostle, and he was spiritually fitted for the task. And to what end was he graced to be an apostle? Well, for the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. Note that the definite article is not in the Greek. It does not literally say for, the, for obedience to the faith, as in referring to the body of truth called the faith, but rather for obedience to faith as in the sense of personal, subjective faith. The goal of Paul's apostleship was to bring people to personal faith in Christ through the gospel. Now, this is a very important thing. It's very important to properly understanding the book of Romans and in understanding the nature of what is involved in a saving faith commitment. Paul both begins and ends the book of Romans with this key emphasis on the obedience of faith. It's a big deal. These are the two bookends of the book, and in essence, give the purpose statement for Christ giving Paul the grace of apostleship. It was to the end that people might come to the obedience of faith. Note, Book ends here. I got the ESV up here because it's uh, 
more literal in terms of the phrase I'm looking at, obedience of faith, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, more literally Gentiles. And then at the end of the book, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. But now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, and here it is, to bring about the obedience of faith. That's the intended goal. And in between these two bookends, Paul throughout the book of Romans consistently depicts the act of saving faith as being a response of obedience. Note, Romans 6.17, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, that's where we were in our unbelief, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. There was a response of obedience from the heart. And then in Romans 10.3, here's the Jews' problem. He says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted, have not obeyed, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Furthermore, Israel's problem, Romans 10.16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. That's their problem. Romans 15, 18, I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. To, To what end? To make them obedient. He's talking about the obedience of faith. That's where everything starts. And then here as we will get to it, Lord willing, next week. In Romans 1.8, he says, First, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all. To what end? That your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Wow, what a testimony. And then he says at the end of the book, For your obedience has become known to all. Their obedience of faith. Your faith is spoken of throughout the entire world. Now, not only is this emphasis on obedience in conjunction with saving faith emphasized in Romans, but is also seen in the rest of the New Testament as well. For example, here in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 talking about the coming of Christ in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. What's their problem? They don't obey the gospel. Yeah, they were unbelievers, but there was a willful rejection. Uh, They do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.22, since you have purified your souls, how? In obeying the truth. Through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now, this word obedience is really a... Here here in Romans 5.1, this word obedience is really a combination of two Greek words. So note, obedience, hupakuo. Hupo uh, means, uh, is the Greek word meaning under. Akuo means here. So literally... 
it means hear under with the idea of listening and submitting to that which is heard. So justifying faith itself is an act of obedience. You see, God commands all men everywhere to repent. It's God's command that we should believe on the name, the person of his son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 3, 23. It's not a suggestion. It's a command to be obeyed. I like this quote that summarizes what I'm trying to say nicely. This is Robert Haldane. Some understand this as the obedience which faith produces. Now, if you're trying to get away from uh, the element of obedience in the act of saving faith, you might take this view. So some understand this as the obedience which faith produces, but the usual import of the expression as well as the connection in this place determines it to apply to the belief of the gospel. (laughs) That's the whole subject here. Obedience is no doubt an effect produced by that belief, but the office of an apostle was in the first place to persuade men to believe the gospel. It was given that men might believe and be saved. The obedience then here referred to signifies submission to the doctrine of the gospel. The heart of Paul's gospel ministry, which is the whole point of his apostleship, was to see people come to saving faith, a saving faith response, which he here calls the obedience of faith. Now, he didn't say the faith, as I've already said, but rather just faith in the sense of subjective personal faith. Now, this was the core of Paul's frontline apostolic ministry, to share the gospel and to take the gospel where it had never been before. That's what he says in Romans 15, verse 20. With the end goal of having people believe. That's always the end goal of the gospel. We see Paul summarizing his ministry in Acts 20, 21, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, everybody, What? Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jesus recounting, uh, or Paul recounting what Jesus told him and the commission he was given, uh, where Jesus says to him in Acts 26, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. To what end? To open their eyes. In order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. An inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith, are set apart by faith that is in me. By faith in me. Also note, the whole context of this emphasis on obedience to faith is set in relation to Paul's apostolic gospel ministry. It is the gospel of God that drives the entire first seven verses of this letter in relation to Paul introducing himself as an apostle. Now, there are really three key points that Paul is making in the first seven verses. First is the fact of the gospel which his apostleship was separated unto. Everything builds on this. Second, then, is the substance of the gospel which is found in the person of Christ. Really strong emphasis out of the gate on the person of Christ. And third is the saving 
response to the gospel, which Paul here terms the obedience of faith. The heart of Paul's whole ministry was the gospel of Christ and bringing people to faith, which involves an act of obedience. Now, all of this argues strongly that the obedience of faith in view is referring to personal saving faith. Now, Paul could have just said that his apostleship was, with, with, was uh, in view to faith among the Gentiles, but he clarified it as being for the obedience of faith. The addition of for obedience to speaks to the very nature of saving faith, showing it involves a volitional element Obedience inherently involves an element of submission or yielding involving the will. The gospel truth must be obeyed. And this is consistent with what Paul emphasizes in Romans 10, 9 and 10, where he says, with the heart, one believes. The heart relates to volition, the response required. Now, I'm not one to readily quibble with Charles Spurgeon for good reason. You almost always lose when you do that. But uh, he is known as the Prince of Preachers for a reason. Everybody quotes Charles Spurgeon. We all love Charles Spurgeon. Great, godly man. But there is a quote of him, I think, that needs to be clarified. I see it out there, these memes, and and it's readily bandied about. And, uh, you know, properly understood, it's fine. But uh, you'll see what I mean here, right? Where he says here, uh, We are not saved by obedience, for obedience is the result of salvation. We are saved by faith because faith leads us to obey. Well, properly understood, yeah. But see, here's my problem. Uh, We are not saved by obedience of works. We're not saved by, if you're talking works, yeah. Yeah. We're not saved by obedience of works. For obedience of works is the result of salvation. But here's the deal. We are not saved by the obedience of works. For the obedience of works is the result of salvation, as he says. However, we are saved by the obedience of faith. Obedience of faith, salvation. Obedience of works, the fruit of salvation. There is the bottom line. In this age, we are now under a law. Paul calls it a law of faith. Romans 3.27. And God's law of faith demands that people now, in faith, submit to the gospel truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Expositors Greek Testament The object of the apostleship received through Christ is obedience of faith. That is the obedience which consists in faith. Among all the Gentiles. Now repeatedly we see that Paul's entire apostolic mission was to bring people to submissively be obedient to the gospel. It is the element of obedience that defines the very nature of of saving faith as explained by Paul. Leon Morris says, It is not without interest that this epistle, which puts 
Such stress on the free salvation, won for us by Christ's atoning act, should also stress the importance of obedient response. That is a great point. Yes, indeed, that is of great interest. And what exactly is the nuance? Well, note the context of what Paul has first and foremost laid out in this all-important foundational sentence regarding the gospel. Note the flow of thought, which is what proper understanding is all about. Where does he start? Very first verse. Apostles separated the gospel of God. And then he gets into it concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, declared to be the son of God with power. To what end? His apostleship is for the obedience of faith. What is the subject in, in between here? He introduces the gospel that he separated to. It's, uh, his apostleship is for obedience. What is the subject? It's Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the Son of God. So the apostolic commission is the gospel for the obedience of faith, and his subject is Jesus Christ our Lord, the Son of God. That's the context. That's the flow of thought. As we often say, a text without a context is a pretext. That's the flow. That's the emphasis. John Stott correctly says, So obedience of faith is Paul's definition of the response which the gospel demands. A true and living faith in Jesus Christ includes within itself an element of submission. Especially because its object is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This is the salient point that Paul makes in his opening statement. Jesus is our Lord God, and Paul's apostleship existed to bring people to the obedience of faith in him. This obedience of faith recognizes Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. This and nothing short of this is the obedience of faith. Now, having shown that saving faith involves the obedience of faith, let me make a couple of applications. You know, and I, <laughs> I, I always want to say I'm a biblicist, and, uh, you know, I think biblicists get shot at from every direction theologically sometimes. Because people have their systems, and they lock into a system, and they can't think outside that system. I, I want to think through the, the prism of the whole counsel of God. Of course, everybody says that. But number one, in terms of application, this definition of saving faith destroys easy believism, which refuses to recognize any element of submissive obedience in the act of saving faith. I have a problem with that. It sees faith as purely a passive concept of relying upon, but not that of submission to Christ's lordship. But obedience, by its very nature, is an act of the will involving an element of submission. And the context here is strongly lordship. 
Number two, this definition of saving faith refutes a hyper-deterministic theology that says faith is just a gift and that no human response is involved. Obedience of faith is clearly a human response. God doesn't just zap people with faith. Yes, he in grace works to bring people to faith. But there is also the element of human responsibility and human response. You know what it's called? It's called the obedience of faith. Now, some strong Calvinists see the notion of demanding the obedience of faith for salvation as being a work. I mean, if you have to do something, even believe, they put that in the category works. I don't know what you do with Acts 16. What must I do to be saved? Well, nothing. No, that's not what they said. Uh, Here's what you have to do. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But they call it things like decisional regeneration. Well, obedience does involve a decision. Regeneration is all God's doing. But faith involves human response. They say the very act of believing is a work. But that is not how Paul defines it. Paul presents grace and works as mutually exclusive, as an antithesis, as well as faith and works. But he never places faith in opposition to grace. Let me show you what I mean. We get to Romans chapter 4, and Paul says, Therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace. You see, we're saved by grace through faith. That's the full equation. Don't forget the through faith. Now, faith is not works, but rather faith is according to grace. To call people to believe is not works. To think that God just zaps people with faith really flies in the face of all that the New Testament teaches regarding human responsibility. People have to come to the knowledge involving thinking, the knowledge of the truth, which God desires all to do. 1 Timothy 2. And then they have to obey that truth by putting their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. By grace through faith. We're not saved by the obedience of works, but we are saved by the obedience of faith, which is according to grace. Not contrary to it. Jesus The Lord alone is Savior. But faith is the God-ordained means of appropriation. Paul's apostolic calling was special because he had a unique role in relation to the Gentiles. In Romans 11, 13, Paul said, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. That's his niche as an apostle. When he says his apostleship was for the obedience of faith among all nations, it more literally means among all Gentiles. And we see this clearly even from the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 13. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among 
other Gentiles. Paul's major niche, yes, he shared to the Jew, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And when he went into town, yes, he would, but the Jews were largely resistant. And so he turned to the Gentiles. And the reason behind Paul's special apostleship for obedience of faith among all Gentiles is for the sake of Jesus. It's for his name. His name stands for his whole person, all that he is. Uh, bringing the Gentiles to the obedience of faith was all for Jesus. Paul's apostleship was on behalf of Christ's name. It's all about Jesus. Now, the purpose of Paul's apostleship was to promote the obedience of faith. The scope was in relation to all Gentiles, and the motive was for Christ's sake. We see this right from the very beginning in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. The Lord is uh, saying something about Paul's apostleship here, really. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. This is all for Jesus. Now, in the first five verses of Romans, there are seven key truths brought out about the gospel. Number one, it finds its origin in God. It is the gospel of God. Number two, Paul's apostleship was for the promotion of this gospel. Number three, its attestation attestation is the prophetic Old Testament scriptures. Number four, its substance is God's Son, who is our Lord. Number five, its purpose is to bring people to the obedience of faith. Number six, its scope includes all the Gentiles. And number seven, its ultimate goal is for the name, the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. We might define it in terms of seven propositions, right? Of God, through Paul's apostleship, according to the prophetic scriptures, it's about Christ, unto the obedience of faith, for all the Gentiles, for the sake of Christ's name. Boy, he he knew how to put a sentence together, didn't he? Yeah, he did. A lot in there. But then he continues, verse 6. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul has just mentioned the Gentiles in verse 5. And now he says, Among whom you, you Gentiles, are the called of Jesus Christ. Now, this implies that the church in Rome was predominantly Gentile in terms of background at this point. However, we know from the contents of the letter that it was comprised of both Jew and and Gentile believers in terms of background. These Gentile believers in Rome who have come to the obedience of faith are termed the called of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul uses this same word, called, in verse 1 to refer to his own special calling as an apostle. As a footnote, note that in Acts 9.15, Jesus said Paul was a chosen vessel. And then here in Romans 1, 1, Paul says he was called to be an apostle. Well, the idea of chosen and called are essentially interchangeable in this regard. Now, the word called simply means summoned. They were summoned by Jesus Christ. The called as used by Paul always refers to those who have responded in saving faith to the gospel. As used by Paul... It always refers to an effectual call. 
So the called are those who have heard the gospel call of Jesus and responded to it with the obedience of faith. The called are those who have answered the call. They have responded in saving faith. Now, in calling them the called, Paul is indicating that it was God who took the initiative in saving them. God is always the initiator. You see, when Adam fell in sin, Adam and Eve, when Adam fell in sin, it wasn't Adam who went looking for God, was it? Rather, it was God who came after Adam. It was God who came down and said, where are you? Adam, we're not even looking for you. No, he didn't say that. But it was true. This is always the direction. God always must take the initiative because in our depravity, there is none who seeks after God. Apart from divine intervention, there is no hope. God is the one who calls. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And then he says in verse 7, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome refers to all those who have responded to the obedience of faith. That is the call of Jesus Christ. It is thought that Paul addresses them this way, all who are in Rome, because it seems probable that there were several different assemblies of believers in Rome, not just a single church. The language in Romans 16 seems to suggest that Paul has a number of home churches, home church groups, perhaps in view. Now remember, Rome was a city thought to have more than a million people. Uh, what are the odds that you have just one local assembly? Well, probably several uh, were represented there. But Paul further refers to them here as beloved of God. You know, God loves the whole world. We know John three sixteen, right? God so loved the world. But it is the called, the saints, who are called beloved of God. The unsaved are never called beloved. William Newell says, A man even may and should love his neighbors, but his wife and children are his beloved. As God's people, we uniquely know the special intimate reality of God's love. We enter into the reality of it. R. Kent Hughes says, Fellow believers, we are loved by God. We need to get used to this. But we should never get over it. And then Paul says these believers are called to be saints. Actually, the words to be are not in the Greek. More literally, he just says, called saints. The word saints means set apart ones or holy ones. In the New Testament, all believers are positionally called saints. This refers to positional sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart. Uh, in Christ, you're set apart. The moment you believe in Christ, you are instantly set apart to Christ as being holy. Instantly, the blood of Jesus Christ forever cleanses you from all sin. The penalty of sin is forever taken care of. By one offering, he, Jesus Christ is perfected forever. Hebrews 10, 14. This is your position forever. Forever. 
you are forever a saint, a holy one. Might as well put it up since I quoted it. Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering he has perfected forever. For how long? Forever is forever. Those who are being sanctified. This verse really contains the truth of both positional sanctification, perfected forever, and also practical sanctification, being sanctified. Positionally, we are perfected forever, but in our practice, we are growing to be more like Christ. In our practice, we won't be perfect until we get to glory. We are in process, but our position as perfected saints never changes. You know, the church at Corinth had all kinds of problems. I mean, you read 1 Corinthians, it's like, oh my goodness, you don't want to join that church. That, that church has problems. I mean, they're fighting. They got immorality represented. They got all kinds of problems. Let's, let's sue each other, shall we? Um, on and on. But even though they had all kinds of problems in their practice, they were still saints. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Yeah, they're they're sanctified. They're set apart. Called to be saints. With all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Some years ago, the Pope died. And the headlines, uh, I, I saw and I read this with interest. The headline said, the Vatican clears John Paul for sainthood. Isn't that nice honor? Sad. Only God can change a sinner into a saint. And that must happen before you die. Whatever state we die in, we will remain there forever. People either die in sin or they die in Christ. All depending on whether they have come to the obedience of faith or not. According to the Bible, there are saints, believers, and there are ain'ts. Everyone is in one of those two categories. Everyone sitting here this morning is in one of those two categories. You're either a saint or an ain't. You know, every once in a while, the professing believers say, well, well, I'm no saint. You know, that's equivalent to saying, well, I'm no Christian. In Christ, we are all new creations. All things have become new. The New Testament no longer sees the identity of the believer as that of being a sinner. Sometimes people say, well, I'm just a sinner, sinning all the time. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, you know, again, that needs to be properly clarified. You know, really more properly, I was just a sinner. But now I've been saved by grace and I'm a saint. How about that? Oh, it's a little foreign to you maybe, but it's totally biblical. You see, we were sinners. But now we've been converted to being saints. That is now our position in Christ. That's your true identity. The word sinner is essentially interchangeable with ungodly. We were ungodly sinners, but now in Christ we are saints. In practice, we may still sin, but our identity is now that of being a saint. As believers, we are saints who may sin. We are not sinners who occasionally saint. By the way, a sinning saint is really a contradiction. 
we are not living at that point consistent with who we are. I refer you to Romans chapter 6, but I digress. We're only in chapter 1. The issue for believers is to now live consistently with who we truly are as saints. Yes, we all stumble in many ways. And yet he who has begun a good work in us will continue it. God disciplines all of his children, no exceptions, to build holiness into our lives. Now, isn't it amazing that we are called saints? All of us. I mean, yeah, all of us, even me. Even with all of our imperfections, weaknesses, inconsistencies, struggles, we're saints. S. Clive Thexton wrote, When Paul writes to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, he is writing not to people likely to figure in stained glass windows, but to a somewhat motley collection of shopkeepers, minor civil servants, converted prostitutes, prize fighters, and slaves. These are the people called to be God's holy ones. Yes. Leon Morris makes a really pertinent point here. The word saint is never used of any individual believer. It is always plural when used of believers. And the plural points to believers as a group, a community set apart for God. So I always think it's, you know, people say, well, I'm, just, I'm a Christian, but I live in total isolation as a way of life. Really? When you, have you read the New Testament? Uh, how does that work? Isn't this interesting? Saints are always pictured as being a part of a group. This is the very nature of the church, by the way. You take a motley group of people like us, put us together and say, hey, we're going to do something for God. Wow, that has to be a God thing if that's going to happen. We are a forever family intended by God to be together, to function together. The word church literally means called out assembly. You don't get saved in isolation. Immediately, you are made a part of the family of God. And God intends for us to function in that regard. And we will do so for all eternity. The word saints means set apart ones, but the emphasis is not so much a separation from something as it is separation to God. The notion is that of belonging to God. We used to belong to the rebel world system. We used to belong to the devil as his children. But now in the obedience of faith, we are set apart to God. He has taken us out of the world and placed us in Christ. Our position has changed. Everything has changed. All the relationships of life are now different. Our relationship with the world has changed. Our relationship with sin has changed. Our relationship with the devil has changed. Our relationship with God has changed. Our relationship with God's people has changed. We are now saints living under a whole new arrangement with Christ as our master. Paul had to tell those Corinthians, here's the way it is. If anyone's in Christ, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Oh, things have passed away. 
Behold all things, not some, all things that become new, all the relationships of life. And then finally, after this long gospel introduction, Paul gets to his standard salutation at the end of verse 7, where he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, in essence, seems to have coined this greeting in every one of his epistles. These two words, grace and peace, appear together. Now, commonly in Paul's day, a common Gentile letter would begin with the Greek word cherim, cherim, which meant greetings. This word looked and sounded somewhat like the word for grace, but it is distinct from it. So Paul changed it up a bit and started all of his letters with the Greek word charis, which means grace. You can see, uh, somewhat of us looks a little the same. Charin, greetings, charis, grace. Well, to this tweaked, if you will, Gentile-based greeting, Paul then added the traditional Jewish salutation of peace which corresponds to the Hebrew shalom, which is one of my favorite words. Shalom. Uh, I love it. Uh, Thus, many believe that grace and peace really became a Christianized form of the Aaronic blessing found in number six, where we read, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Grace. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace. Grace and peace. Grace refers to God's unmerited favor. Uh, He is not referring to saving grace because he is addressing those who are already believers. Grace here refers to God's unmerited favor of blessing. And grace always comes first. It's always mentioned first because everything flows out of grace. I'm telling you, we are trophies of grace from A to Z for all eternity. Grace, grace, grace. It's all grace. We're going to sing about grace for all eternity. God's favor is continually upon his children. Continually we have all things working together for good. As John 1.16 says, we have received grace upon grace. The idea is grace piled upon grace. <laughs> Every breath is, is grace. Peace is the idea that all is well. Everything is as it should be. This is how it is in Christ for the believer. Ultimately, all is well so that we can sing it is well with my soul. Now, many think that Paul perhaps united the Greek and Jewish modes of greeting, although he tweaked the Greek one. And perhaps he did this as a part of his overall ministry emphasis to show that now in Christ, both Jew and Gentile are one and equally receive all the spiritual blessings found in Christ. But note very carefully that this benediction of grace and peace is not merely from Paul. And we often read it that way. And we say it, right? Grace and peace to you. Who am I to say grace and peace to you? I'm nobody. I mean, if it's my grace, forget it. Rather, This isn't merely from Paul, but rather from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This greeting is really from God. And Paul is just the messenger. And what a great message to convey to God's people. God has a message for you. What is it? We have a greeting from God. What is it? 
God conveys his grace and peace to you. You are the recipient of his continual bestowal of grace and peace. How wonderful. Suppose the greeting would have been, be very much afraid from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our harsh master. Well, that would have been a different feel. Thankfully, that is not the case. Rather, the message from God was grace and peace. Now, you can sleep on that. You can rest in this message from God. Come what may, God is ever extending his grace and peace to you as his child. Thirteen times, Paul brings out this message from God. Every letter he ever wrote, this is always the message from God to his children. It never changes. And note that Paul links God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This shows equality. They're on the same level. Imagine, he said, uh, imagine if I'm writing, uh, grace to you and peace from God the Father and Dwight Oswald. Boy, I really put myself up. We would never do that. This could only be true if Jesus was equal with God the Father. Just as grace and peace always go together and can never be separated, so also with God the Father and God the Son. Father carries with it the idea of sovereign caregiver, absolute ruler over all. Carries with it the idea of benevolence, love, discipline, and authority. God is the spiritual, or the believer's spiritual father. And note Paul uses the full name of Jesus here, the Lord Jesus Christ. This name is rich with meaning for true believers. He's our Lord, our sovereign master. He is Jesus, meaning our God's savior. He is the Christ, the special chosen one who fulfills all of God's promises. The only people in the world who are the recipients of the blessings mentioned here in verses 6 and 7 are those who have come to the obedience of faith. Note uh, what those blessings are. Obedience of faith, what flows out of this? Called of Jesus Christ, beloved of God, called saints, grace to you, peace to you. Romans has my name written all over it. You see, I was raised in a Christian home. My godly mother made me memorize scripture. I still regret my rebellious years. Oh my goodness, the heartache I must have been. But I knew the truth of the gospel, and yet I didn't personalize it. Still, I wanted to claim I was a Christian. I definitely wanted fire insurance. Uh, however, I lived a double life. When I was 21, there was a brand new Christian who came to work. He'd been an atheist. He got saved and he came to work. And, and I said, well, I'm a Christian too. <laughs> he said, if you're a Christian, why are you living the way you're living? Uh, nobody ever challenged me like that before. On Christmas Day in 1979, I wrote, it's been the greatest year of my life. Oh, how great it is to be loved. May my life be to the honor and glory of Jesus who loves me and who is my master. And all the forces in hell can't separate us. Amen. Well, when I went home to share with my mom and told her what had happened to me, she said, this is like night and day. Exactly. My life was radically changed when I came to the obedience of faith. As a new Christian, I was reading through the New Testament. I came to Romans. And as I was reading through Romans, I came to chapter 10 where it says, With the heart 
One believes under righteousness. And instantly I knew this is what my problem had been. Previously, I had an intellectual assent and gave lip service to Christianity, but it wasn't really in my heart. Yeah, I had somewhat of a form of godliness in certain contexts, but uh, I had never come to the obedience of faith. It was the obedience of faith in which I truly appropriated Christ as my master, my Lord and Savior, that forever changed my life. Well, as I grew in faith, I came to realize the ultimate issue in the Bible is having the right kind of faith, which Paul defines as the obedience of faith. And this has been a major emphasis in my life and ministry ever since. Let me ask you, have you come to the obedience of faith? Or do you have merely kind of an intellectual assent? You know, kind of like the demons have. Have you in your heart believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he truly your master, your God, master, and savior? The Bible says, now is the accepted time. The Bible says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. The last invitation of the Bible is, come. You know, there's an interesting verse in John 3 in the gospel of belief. And I have the ESV here because it accurately renders what the Greek says here. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. How can we have believe and obey in the same verse? How can that be? It's perfectly consistent with what Paul said in terms of the obedience of faith. It's all about the nature of faith. Have you obediently believed on the Son? If we can help you in any way, come and talk with us elders. We're always up front. Come to Christ above all. But we would love to help you if we can. Let's stand, have our closing song.